Welcome back, Coming Brainiacs, and congratulations. We finished book one, Ave, A-V-E. Um, so I guess we're about a third of the way through the book. That's pretty cool. Um, what did you reckon of the book? What did you... Oh, the book one of the trilogy. Tecrific says, Neither can think deeply in French, says more about himself and Yeats, but as a francophone myself, I'd say that they play pretty gracefully with French, in my opinion. I found myself quite drawn into the narrative of the two lovers and their ordeal with their assailants. This might have been most interesting and invested I've been in the book so far. Well, there you go. You obviously read it in French, Tech. More power to you. I can't do that. Uh, Swim says, I'm on fish. He said, Ander ran the French through a translation app and read the French part in English on his podcast, which was a godsend. My college French for a year decades ago was not up to it. I think George was showing false modesty since by this time he had been living in France for years. George is infuriating, hilarious, charming it turns. So this in this book, and from what I can tell from my outside reading, exactly how he was in real life. It's a way difficult read. This would have been an easier read back when it was first published, a little over a hundred years ago, when the events and people were fresh and not yet fading from contemporary memory. George died in 1933 and Hemingway scribbled his list in 1934. There would have been tributes of George at that time. Many of the people George includes in the book were alive, still active in their various pursuits, and still newsworthy. Hemingway also lived in France and hobnobbed with the literary and artistic crowd, as did George at one time. It's no wonder George was included on the list. Well, that makes sense. They're probably mates. They were both Francophiles. For this reason and all of the above, I can understand why this book was included. With all that said, however, if it wasn't that I want that, I want to be able to say, slash brag, without lying, that I read all the books on the list, I would have given up on this book very close to the beginning. Yeah. Oh, well, I think I've made that quite clear that I probably wouldn't have read this book if it wasn't for this list. But after having literary, literally, see what I did there, invested years in this endeavour, onward ho. Yeah, exactly. I mean, years. Isn't that amazing? Aren't we amazing? Um, oh, and we're so close. Victory is you know, just on the horizon. That's pretty exciting. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something, but it slipped in my mind. Ah, oh, yeah, what I was going to say. Um, I do feel it's a bit of a shame we ended on this book. You know, there's been good and bad books in the list, and it would have been great to end on one of the better ones. Um, but hey, what are you going to do? That hell, You know what we could have done? We could have looked at the rankings of each book, like the, you know... IMDB score or Goodreads score as it would be if I was doing this all over again which I'm not (laughs) Uh, looked at the rankings and seen which was the most popular or highest rated book and ranked them in that order and then started from worst and went all the way to best so that the books got better and better and better as we proceeded now that would have been a good idea wish I had thought of that five years ago okay let's keep reading We're up to self.
um, chapter one. Here we go. It's quite a longish chapter. I'm just having a quick little scroll through. Chapter one. As I returned home after the dinner at Tonks, lightly weighing my friend's talents, the thought suddenly struck me that in leaving London I was leaving them forever. Whether in a week or six weeks, I did not know. Only of this was I sure that my departure could not be much longer delayed. And while passing through Grosvenor Gardens, I began to wonder by what means the destiny I had just heard would pull me out of my flat in Victoria Street. Two years or eighteen months of my lease still remained. This lag end had been advertised, but no desirable tenant had presented himself, and it did not seem to me that I could go away to Dublin, leaving the flat empty, taking with me all my pictures and furniture. A house in Dublin would be part of my equipment as a Gaelic League propagandist, and it would cost me a hundred pounds a year. Houses in Dublin are rarely in good repair. Some hundreds might have been have to be spent on it. And falling into an armchair, I asked myself where all this money was to come from. My will is always at ebb when the necessity arises of writing to my banker to ask him how many hundred pounds are between me and destitution. We are but a heredity. My father was a spendthrift and hated accounts. And to me, accounts are as mysterious as Chinese as repellent. Well, <laughs> we are the same man with a difference. The pain, the pain that his pecuniary embarrassment caused him seems to have fallen on me with such force that I am naturally economical. My agent said when he visited me in the temple... Very few would be content to live in a cockloft like you, George, his remark, or a certain lady's objection to the three flights of stairs had tempted me out of the temple, and now hatred of the Boer War was forcing me into what seemed a pit of ruin. Two hundred and fifty a year I shall be paying for houses, I said, and yet I must go, even if I am to end my days in the workhouse, I must go, even though to engage in Gaelic League propaganda may break up the mould of my mind. The mould of my mind doesn't interest me any longer. It is an English mould. Better break it up at once and have done with it. Whereupon my thoughts faded away into a vague meditation in which ideas did not shape themselves, and next morning I rose from my bed undecided whether I should go or stay, but knowing all the while that I was going, it was a queer feeling, day passing over day, and myself saying to myself, I am twelve hours nearer departure than I was yesterday, yet having no idea how I was going to be freed from my flat, but certain that something would come to free me. And the something that came was the Westminster Trust, a company that had been formed in the purpose of acquiring property in Victoria Street. It had been creeping up from Westminster for some time past, absorbing house after house, turning the grey, austere residential mansions built in 1830 into shops. It had reached within a few doors of me about the time of my landlord's death, and as soon as his property passed into the hands of the Trust, notice was served upon the tenants that their leases would not be renewed. One lease, that of a peaceable general officer who lived over my head and never played the piano, expired around that time, and as arrangements could not be made for turning his flat at once into offices, it was let, temporarily, to a foreign financier, 
who demanded more light. The extra windows that were put in to suit his pleasure and convenience seemed to the company's architect such an improvement that the company offered to put extra windows into my rooms free of cost. But, don't you see, that if two windows be put in, the present admirable relation to wall space to window will be destroyed. Light, after all. I engage these rooms, I said, because I believe that they would afford me the quiet necessary for a composition of books. For the last three weeks I haven't heard the sweet voice of a silent hour. Have you any ear for music? Tell me, if a silent hour is not comparable to a melody by Mozart, you live in a quiet suburban neighbourhood, I'm sure, and can tell me all the beautiful piece of Peckham in your, in your face. The manager regretted that the improvements over my head had caused me inconvenience, and he suggested putting me upon half rent until these were complete, and surprisingly a generous, generous offer, so I thought I at the time buried by it, but very soon I discovered that the reduction of my rent gave him all kinds of rights, including the building of a wall, depriving my pantry of eight or nine inches of light, and the chipping away of my window sills. The news that I was about to lose my window sills brought me out of my bedroom in pyjamas, and throwing up the window I got out hurriedly and seated myself on the sill, thinking that by doing so I could defy the workmen. But, Bill, drop your armour on his fingernails, Better wait and see how long he'll stand for his fine frosty morning in his pyjamas. The wisdom of this workman inspired my servant to cry to me to come in. We both feared pneumonia. But if I did not dress myself very quickly, the workman would have knocked away the window sill. It was a race between us, and I think that half the sill was gone when I was partially dressed, so I seated myself on the last half. Let him bide cried one workman to his mate, who had was threatening my fingers with the hammer. And they continued their improvements about my windows, filling my rooms with dust and noise. I know not how it started, but a tussle began between me and one of the stone cutters. We'll see what the magistrate will have to say about this bloody assault, said the man as he climbed down the ladder. And when I was had finished my dressing, I went out to my solicitor, who seemed to look upon the struggle of the scaffolding as very serious. His application for redress was un was answered by a letter saying that if a summons were issued against the company, a cross-summons would be issued against me for assault on one of the workmen. A civil action, the solicitor said, was my remedy, and I should have gone on with this if the company had not expressed a good deal of regret when the tradesman engaged in laying down a parquet floor for the financier brought down my dining room ceiling with a crash. The director sent me at once to sweep up the litter, and he ordered his new tenant, the financier, to restore the ceiling, but my solicitor advised me to refuse the tradesman admission, and by doing so I found that I had again put myself in the wrong. The ceiling was put up at my expense after a long interval, during which I dined in the drawing room. My solicitor's correspondence with the company did not procure me any special terms. The company merely repeated an offer they had previously made, which was to buy up the end of my lease for £100, a very inadequate compensation, it seemed to me, for the annoyance I had endured. But, as I felt that my solicitor could not cope with the company, I came gradually to the conclusion that I had better accept the £100. I would pay for the removal of all my furniture and pictures to Dublin, leaving something over for the house, which I would have to hire at once. For the offer of the company was subject to my giving up possession at the end of the month. I ordered my trunk to be packed that evening and next morning was at the house agent's office in Grafton Street and while the clerk made out a long list of houses for me I told him my requirements 
The houses in Marion Square are too large for a single man of limited income. I had lived with my mother in one when boycotting brought me back from France. The houses in Stephens Green are as fine, but even if one could have been gotten at a reasonable rental, Stephens Green did not tempt me. My imagination turning rather to a quiet old-fashioned house with a garden situated in some sequestered half-forgotten street in which old ladies live, pious women who would pass my window every Sunday morning along the pavement on their way to church. The house agent did not think he had exactly the house, street, and the inhabitants I described upon his books, but there was a house he thought would suit me in Upper Mount Street. I remembered the street dimly, a chilly street with an uninteresting church at the end of it, a bucolic relation had taken a house in Upper Mount Street in the 80s and had given parties with a view of ridding himself of two uninterested sisters-in-law, but the experiment had failed, so I knew what the houses in Upper Mount Street were like, ugly, common, expensive, my trouble to visit them. All the same, I visited two or three, and from the doorstep of one I caught sight of Mount Street Crescent, bending prettily about a church, but there were no bills in any window, and the Jarvey was asked why he didn't take me to Lower Mount Street. Because, he said, all the houses there are lodging houses, and he turned his horse's head and drove me into a delightful draggle-tailed end of the town, silhouetting charmingly, I remembered, on the evening sky, for I had never failed to admire Bagoff Street when I visited Dublin. There was always something strangely attractive in a declining neighbourhood, and thinking of the powdered lackeys that must have stood on steps that now I pour slavy washes, I began to dream. The house that I had been directed to was not, was no doubt a fine one, but its fate is declension, for it lives in my memory not by marble chimney pieces nor atom ceilings, but by the bite of the most ferocious flea that I ever met caught from the caretaker no doubt at the last moment for i was on the car before he nipped me in the middle of the back exactly where i can't scratch and from there he jumped down upon my loins and nipped me again and again until i arrived at shelbourne where i had to strip naked to discover him if the creator of fleas had not endowed them with a passion for whiteness humanity would, humanity would perish i muttered descending the stairs "'Are you after catching him, sir?' the Javi asked. "'Yes, and easily, for he was drunk with my blood, "'as you might be upon John Jameson on Saturday night, "'and we drove away to Fitzwilliam Square. "'The houses there are large and clean, "'but the rents were higher than I wished to pay, "'and it did not seem to me "'that I should occupy an important enough position in the square, "'something a little more personal, I said to myself, "'and drove away to Leeson Street, "'a repetition of Bagot Street, "'decrepit houses that I... Had once sheltered, that had once sheltered an aristocracy, now falling into the hands of nuns and lodging housekeepers. It was abandoned for Harcourt Street, but despite the attraction of some magnificent areas and lamp posts with old lanterns, I decided that I would not live in Harcourt Street and returned to the agent, who produced another list the next day. I visited Pembroke Road and admired the great flights of granite steps that led to doorways that seemed to bespeak a wife and family so emphatically that I drove to Clyde Road, and finding it too pompous and suburban, too significant of distillers and brewers, 
I told the Jarby to drive me to Waterloo Road, a long, monotonous road, which some pretty houses and gardens, connecting Pembroke Road with Upper Leeson Street, but unable to associate it in my mind with my mission to Ireland, I cried out, Castlewood Avenue. The Jarvie took me hither, but the avenue at once shabby and genteel disappointed me. I cried to Jarvie, Klonskach. He took me up the Rathmines Road into Klonskach, where I found some pleasant houses, not one of which was to let. The old story of houses that had long been left remaining at the agent's books after Klonskach. We wandered through Terenure into a desolate region, which the Jarvie told me was Klonkdalken, and followed a lonely road that seemed to lead away from all human habitation. But you see, I said to the driver, I'm looking for a house in the town. It is to the moat we are going, he answered, and half an hour later our horse stopped before a drawbridge, which I doubted not would cost a great deal of money to put into working order, but when it is lifted my friends will know that I am composing, and it can be let down at tea-time. A grand sight it will be to see them, all Gaelic leaguers, of course, walk across it, excuse me, into the moated grange. About a thousand pounds, the caretaker said, would make the place quite comfortable, and I answered that the moat appealed to me in many ways, but that I had not come to Ireland in search of a picturesque residence, but in the hope of reviving the language of the tribe whose want, whose want it was to come down from the rim of the Blue Hills over yonder to invade Dublin and to be repulsed by different garrisons of the Pale. One was no doubt ensconced here, and thinking of Mount Venus, the house that I had visited high up in the Dublin mountains many years ago, wondering whether it would suit me better to live there than to live at the moat, I said to myself, I shall have to live in one or the other, for there doesn't seem to be any house to let in Dublin city. A thousand pounds are needed to make the moat habitable, and that is more than I wish to spend, I said to the clerk, and begged him to give me another list of houses. Again, he searched his books, and a few more addresses were added to the list. I'll try these tomorrow, and leaving the office I followed the pavement along Trinity College Gardens, my feet taking me instinctively to A.E. He settles everybody's difficulties and consoles the afflicted. If I don't find a house, I said to him, in Dublin, I shall have to return to that inferno which is London, and I attempted to dis a description of Muff King, Knight, and, uh, and other knights. There are no houses, A.E., to let. I've searched everywhere and can find nothing but the moat. And Mount Venus, no doubt, is still vacant, but it's good five miles distant from Ranfarnham, and you won't be able to come to see me very often. A.E.'s grey eyes lit up with a kindly, witty smile. Nature, he said, has given you energy, vitality, and perseverance, my dear Moore, but she has denied you the gift of patience, and patience, above all things, is needed when seeking a house. But I've searched Marion Square, Fitzwilliam Square, Harcourt Street, and many a suburb. There were at the time three bank managers waiting to receive instructions from him, but he listened to my story, and I noticed that the anxious typist with a sheaf of letters in her hand did not distract his attention from me. He dismissed her, but without abruptness, and came down to the door, refusing to believe that it would be impossible for me to find a house in Dublin. Ireland thrives in her belief in you, I answered. Perhaps I shall 
For two days I did not hear from him, but on the third morning, as I was asking myself if it would be worthwhile to to hire another car to go forth again to hunt through Mountjoy Square and Rutland Square, where the aristocracy before the Union had built their mansions, the porter came to me to tell me that a gentleman wanted to see me. It was A.E. who had come to tell me that he had found me a house within a few minutes' walk of Stevens Green. The perfect residence, he said, for a man of letters, one of five little 18th century houses shut off from the thoroughfare and with an orchard opposite, which may be yours for two or three pounds a year if you know how to bargain with the landlord. As he spoke these words, we turned a corner and came into sight of an old iron gateway behind it were the five eighteenth-century houses, five modest little houses, but every one with tall windows, a single window above the area, no doubt the dining room, and above it a pair of windows with balconies behind them were the drawing rooms, and the windows above these were the bedroom windows. Not a single pane of plate glass in the house, A.E. The room above mine is the cook's room, and if there are some back rooms... He assured me that the houses were deep and had several back rooms. The drawing rooms were large and lofty, and as well as he remembered, the back windows in the dining and drawing rooms overlooked the convent garden. I should have tramped round Dublin for a month without finding anything, and in three days you have found the house that suits me. Tell me how you did it. Number three was the home of the Theosophical Society, and I remember while editing the review, I used I used to used to envy those that had the right to walk in the orchard. And now you can walk there whenever you please and dine with me under that apple tree, A.E., if the Irish summer is warm enough. But you haven't seen the house yet. I don't want to see the house until my furniture is in it. I am no judge of unfurnished houses. But he insisted on ringing the bell, and while he was making inquiries about the state of the roof and the kitchen flue, I was upstairs admiring marble mantelpieces of no mean design and cottages that the back windows overlooked. Aye, I beseech you to leave off talking about boilers and cisterns and all such a tiresome things. Come upstairs at once and see the dear little slum and the two washerwomen in it. I wish we could hear what they are saying. One does hear some bad language sometimes, and the caretaker murmured, turning her head away. I'm sure they blaspheme, they blaspheme splendidly. Blasphemy is the literature of Catholic countries. A.E., what an interv- in- inveterate mystic you are, as practical as St. Teresa. Whereas I am content if the windows and mantelpieces are 18th century. Don't let the slum trouble you, my good woman. A man of letters never objects to a slum. He sharpens his pen there. The convent garden, sir, on the right. Yes, I see, and a great many night shirts are drying. No, sir, the nun's underwear. Better and better. Into what Eden have you led me, A.E.? Who is the agent of this paradise? Is his name Peter? No, sir, Mr. Thomas Burton. And his address? He lives at the hill, Wimbledon. The landlord lives in Wick- Wicklow. How extraordinary. The landlord of an Irish property living in Ireland and the agent in London. Shall I have to go back to England to interview this agent, A.E.? I can't go back. You won't be quit of England until your affairs are settled. But I can't go back. A.E. smiled so kindly that I half forgot my anger and my impulsiveness began to amuse me. You're always right, A.E. Don't say so, for there's nobody so boring as the righteous man. But come into the garden, where we shall su- we shall dine, I hope, often. A wilderness it seems at present, but the hen coops and swings can be removed. 
He took out his watch. I begged him to stay. He said he couldn't and bade me goodbye quickly. But A.E., I'm going. Whither I went that evening I cannot remember. All I know for certain is that at some assembly, not at the mansion house or at the rotunda, therefore in some private house, I am sure it was in some private house, for I remember Gasolier's silk cushion, ladies' necks. I rushed up to Hyde, both hands extended, my news upon my lips. Hyde, I've come over. It's all settled. I've been driving around Dublin for a week without finding a house and would have gone, had to go away, leave you, think of it. If A.E. hadn't come to my help in the nick of time, he has found me such a beautiful house, Hyde, where you'll come to dine, and where perhaps we'll be able to talk together in Irish, for I am determined to learn the language. <clears throat> you don't mean it. You don't tell me that you've left London for good. You're only joking. <clears throat> You're only joking. And he laughed that vacant little laugh, which is so irritating. But tell me, are you advancing? We're getting on finely. If we could only get the intermediate, the intermediate is most important, but what I want to know is if I shall be able to help you. You've done a great deal already, but but what? Your book, Parnell and His Island, will go against you with the League. I should have thought the League was here to accept those that are willing to help Ireland to recover her language and not to bother about my past. That's the way we are over here, he said, and I, again I had to endure his irritating little laugh, but I am thinking the League might be reconciled to your book if you were to issue it with a subtitle, Parnell and his Islands, or Ireland without her language. I was reading your book the other day, and do you know I wouldn't say that it wasn't your best book? It is a mere gamble, I answered, and cannot be reissued. You can't think that. And dropping a hint that I might be more useful to them in England than in Ireland, he turned away to tell dear Edward that he was delighted to see him. Now, have you come up from the West for the meeting? You don't tell me so. I don't believe you. Edward reassured him. And your friend George Moore has come over from London and with you both to the back league. How are you, George? I heard you had arrived. What? Already? Father Dineen saw you. I met him in Kildare Street this afternoon and told me that the Keating branch were saying that you're coming over here to write them up the English papers. You start your rumours very quickly in Dublin, I answered angrily, and a stupider one I never heard. I don't write for the papers, even if I did. The Keating branch, I know nothing about it. Hyde, I wish you would use your influence to stop. I was just telling him that he should reissue Parnell and his islands with the subtitle Ireland without her language. Now, what do you think? We're all very anxious to hear what you think, Martin. It would have been much better if he had never written that book. I told him so at the time. I have always told you, George, that I understand Ireland. I mayn't understand England. But what do you mean when you say that you understand Ireland? Yeats joined our group, and when Edward said that I had decided to come to live in Dublin, he tried a joke, but it got lost in the folds of his style, and he looked at Hyde and at Martin, disconsolate, McNeil and the price... The vice-president of the Gaelic League sidled through the crowd, an honest fellow with a great deal of brown beard, but I couldn't get him to express any opinion regarding my coming or the view of the League would take of it. But your subscription will be received gratefully, he said, moving away to avoid further interrogation. Money, I answered, I is always received with gratitude, but I've come to work for the League as well as to subscribe to it, and shall be glad to hear what kind of work you propose to put me to. Uh, would you care to send me to America to collect funds? What do you think, a Gaelic League missionary? 
McNeil answered that if I went to America and collected money, the League would be glad to receive it, but he didn't think that the League would send me over as its representative. They would be glad, however, to receive some journalistic help from me. One of the questions that was engaging the League's attention at the time was how to improve Cleetheim's Solus, and he suggested that I should call upon the editor at my convenience. The last words at my convenience seemed unnecessary, for had I not come to Dublin to serve the Gaelic League, next morning in great impatience I sought the officers of the Gaelic League, and after many inquiries of the passers-by, discovered the number hidden away in the passage, and then the officers themselves at the top of the dusty staircase. An inscription in a strange language was assuring, and a memory of the country of Mayo in my childhood told me that the syllables that bade me enter were Gaelic and not German. A couple of rough-looking men, peasants no doubt, and a native Irish speaker, sat on either side of a large table with account books before them, and in answer to my question if I could see the editor, one of them told me that he was not in at present. But you speak Irish, I said. Both of them nodded, and forgetful of the business upon which I had come, I began to question them as their knowledge of the language, and I am sure that my eyes beamed when they told me that they both contributed to Cleetheum. Your Vice President McNeil sent me here. Would you like? He would like me to write an article. I am George Moore. I'll tell the editor when he comes in, and if you'll send your article, he'll consider it. The next few numbers are full up. This man must be a member of the Keating branch, I said I to himself, and though aware of my folly, I could not restrain my words, but fell to assuring him at once that I had not come to Ireland to write the Keating branch up in the English papers. He was as sure I hadn't, but my article would have to be submitted to the editor all the same. I appreciate your independence, and I'll submit an article, but in England editors are not quite so Olympian to me. The men returned to their account books, and I left the office a little crestfallen, seeking somebody who would neither look upon my coming with suspicion nor treat it as a joke, but finding no one until I met A.E. in College Green coming out of the vegetarian eating house, lighting his pipe after his dish of lentils. Ah, my dear Moore. It is a great good fortune to have you have a friend whose eyes light up always when they see one and whose mind stoops or lifts itself instinctively to one's troubles, divining it, whether it be spiritual or material. Before I had time to speak, he had begun to feel that Kathleen Nihulkan was not treating me very kindly and he allowed me to entertain him with an account of my visit to the Gaelic League and the rebuffs that I had received from the assistant editors of the Cleetham Sulis. Neither of them knew my name, neither had seen my article in the 19th century, and last night Hyde said perhaps I would be more used to them over in England. Nobody wants me to hear A.E., and I'm, yet I am coming. I know I am. But there is other work to do here, he answered, beside the Gaelic League. None that would interest me. All I know for certain is I am coming despite jokes and suspicion. When I told Hyde that I was disposed of the lease of my flat, he said, Now, is that so? You don't tell me you've left London for good. Yeet tries to... Yeats tries to treat my coming as an exquisite joke. Edward is afraid that I may <clears throat> trouble somebody's religious convictions. Nobody wants me, eh? Can you tell me why I am coming to Dublin? If you can, you're a cleverer man than I am. You are that in any case. All I had hoped for was welcome and some enthusiasm. No bonfires, torchlight processions, banners, bands, c'est mille fait. Feltis, 
nothing of that kind, only a welcome. It may be that I did expect some appreciation of the sacrifice I was making, for you see I'm throwing everything into the flames. Isn't it strange, A.E.? You understand, but the others don't. So I'll tell you something that I heard Whistler say years ago. It was in the old Grosvenor Gallery. I have forgotten what we were talking about. One remembers the words, but not what led up to them. Nothing, he said, I suppose matters to you except your writing. And his words went to the very bottom of my soul, <clears throat> frightening me. And I have asked myself again and again if I were capable of sacrificing brother, sister, mother, fortune, friend for a work of art. One is a near madness when nothing really matters but one's work. And I tell you that Withers' words frightened me just as Rock Fool Cool's famous epigram was frightened thousands. You know it? Something about the misfortunes of our best friends never being wholly disagreeable to us. We don't take pleasure in hearing of the misfortunes of our friends, but there is a truth in Rochefoucauld's words all the same. And it wasn't until the Boer War drove me out of England that I began to think that Whistler's words mightn't be truer than Rochefoucauld's. A.E. took out his watch and said he must be getting back to his office. I'm crossing tonight, I cried after him, and in the stream steamer's saloon all I had not said to him rambled on and on in my head, and the summary of it all is that it might be better for me if Whistler's words were true, for in leaving England there could be no doubt that I was leaving a literary career behind me. England had been my inspiration. A mummer's wife and Esther Waters seemed conclusive proof that I could only write about England. Then what is it, I cried, starting up from my berth, that is driving me out of England, for it is not natural to feel as determined as I feel, especially for me, who am not at all self-willed. I am being driven, and I am being pushed headlong into the unknown. There was no motion on board, and believing that we must be by this time nearing the Welsh coast, I climbed the brassy stairs and stood, watching the unwrinkled tide sweeping around the great rock, Along the foreland, the shapes of the fields were visible in the moon haze, and while studying the beauty of the world by night, a lone star reminded me of Stella, and I said, A man is never wholly unhappy as long as he is sure of his mistress's love. (laughs) After all, she said, some hours later, a month isn't a long while. It will pass too quickly, I answered, and to avoid reproaches, and in the hope of enticing her to Ireland, I told her of a garden in the midst of Dublin with apple trees and fig trees and an avenue of lilac bushes as one comes down the steps from the wicket. For the garden is lower than the street, and in the ditch, I know not how else to explain it, there are hawthorns and laburnums. Four walks, she said, and a grass plot. There's a walk down the middle which can be sodded over by, but why should I trouble to arrange your garden for you, since I shall not see you any more? But you will come to paint in Ireland. Do you think that you'd like me to? My dear Stella, the question is, can I live in Ireland without you? And I besought her for the sake of her art. The Irish mountains are as beautiful as the Welsh. Dublin is backed by the Blue Hills, and you won't be obliged to live in a detestable cottage, as you were last in Wales, but in a fine house. And I told her that in my search for one to live in, I had come across a house in Clondalkin, or near it, that would suit her perfectly. A moated stead built in the time of Anne, and seeing she was interested, I described how I had crossed the moat by a little bridge, and between the bridge and the front door there were about thirty yards of gravel. The left wall of the house rises sheer out of the moat. On the other side there is a pathway, and the back a fairly large garden, close to a hundred yards, I should say, and you like gardening, Stella. I'm afraid that so much stagnant water 
But dear one, the water of the moat is not stagnant, it is fed at the upper end by a stream, and it trickles away by the bridge into the brook. And the house itself, she asked, is two-storied, and there are some fine rooms in it, one that I think you could paint in. My recollection is a little dim, but I remember a dining room and a very handsome drawing room, and I think my impression was that the thousand pounds spent upon it would give you such a house as you couldn't get anywhere else. Of that I am sure, and the country about it is all that your art requires. I remember a row of fine chestnuts, and beyond it a far-reaching stretch of tilth to the valley of the Lyfe. Promise me that you'll come. She promised, and now, dear one, tell me of someone who will remove my furniture. And that is the first chapter of Self. Good stuff. Good reading. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.